it's the center of all things that I care about, that Jesus is real, that he's been revealed by God. And I believe that power is still available today, that I believe God is still revealing himself in our lives. And if we pay attention, we'll just see his hand everywhere. And again, I believe the greatest evidence for God is the manifestation of Jesus. This is the Honest Discourse Podcast, where we host loving and authentic conversations that explore truth and exemplify meaningful interactions within our generation. This podcast is created by Anchored North, and our mission is to make captivating, honest, and shareable videos that explore mankind's greatest need, redemption through Jesus. On today's episode, we will be moderating a discussion between Taylor, a Mormon professor at Brigham Young University, and Travis, a professor of apologetics and world religions at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. The purpose of this discourse is not to establish middle ground between both conversationalists, but to explore what is true. As Christians, we believe that the Word of God is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative. We believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. We believe that the Holy Spirit transforms lives, and we believe that God's way is genuinely the best way. We also recognize that there are many viewpoints out there, and today we're discussing differing positions on the Bible and Mormonism. Our guests today, Taylor and Travis, have kindly accepted our invitation to voice their perspectives. Although our organization believes what the Bible teaches regarding Jesus' claims to be God and salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, we gratefully commend both of them for choosing to have this discussion. In a time where people like to group with their tribes and demonize other viewpoints, we can only celebrate their decision to speak to one another in a loving and personal way. The narratives of both conversationalists will be represented in an equal and authentic manner, and listeners will greatly benefit from hearing both of their stories and perspectives. All right. Well, with that said, let's get started. Well, Travis, Taylor, thank you guys again both so much for coming on. Why don't you go ahead and share your stories with us? Yeah, thank you, Greg, for the invitation to participate. Travis, looking forward to chatting more with you. So I grew up in Minnesota, and I feel like I had a pretty good upbringing with parents that cared about me and loved me, a good community of lots of strong Christians that surrounded me and actually encouraged me in my faith, which I really loved. And when I turned 19, I decided to serve an LDS mission. And I was sent to South America, to the country of Chile, and served in what was called the Viña del Mar mission. And that was actually really transformative. I'd never really been out of the country before. I'd been to Canada, but being a Minnesotan, you're more of a Canadian than anything else, so it didn't really count. And being in South America and every day working with people on their terms, trying to understand how you could help them come closer to Jesus was really humbling and empowering. It taught me a lot about what I didn't know about myself in the world, my own weaknesses, and how much more I needed to grow closer to Jesus. And I also just saw the transformative power of scriptures and the love of Jesus in people's lives. And that was just something really thrilling. And you kind of get this spiritual high, like, man, how can I get more of this and share it with more people? So uh, that was a two-year experience. And when I came back, I had this strong desire to continue learning. I felt like, well, man, if I could actually better understand the Bible, I could probably be better at helping people experience Jesus in their lives. So I went to Jerusalem for a semester. Brigham Young University actually has a, an extension program in Jerusalem. We have a building there and students can go there for a semester 
and do an intensive study of the Bible. So you have your typical college classes in college classrooms in our building there. And then on a weekly basis, we go out and do visits of all the places we're studying and you walk where Jesus walked. And it absolutely blew my mind, like to see the reality of the Holy Land and, and also just immerse that deeply into the Bible. I thought, yeah, this is it. This is what I got to do with my life. So I had been a chemical engineer major and had done pretty well at math, chemistry and physics in high school, but in college, well, let's just say I set the curve in several classes. And people think that's a great thing until they realize there's two ends to the curve. <laughs> so I realized if I actually switched into Bible studies, the closest thing we had at Brigham Young University as an undergrad was ancient Near Eastern studies, that that would be the right approach. And I did, I jumped in and you know, there's not a lot of work opportunities in that field unless you go on and get a master's and a PhD. And so that was the career path that I chose. And as Travis knows, it's, it's a long path. It's a lot of time. I did not grow up as somebody who was a book lover, even though I have a bunch of books behind me now. It took me a long time to learn how to love books and learn how to read well. And after BYU, I was thrilled. In some ways, I think it was a miracle. I got into Yale Divinity School. That was an incredible experience. Very ecumenical. There were probably... The numbers may have been around 300, 350 uh, people going to divinity school from 40, 50, 60 different denominations. And it was awesome because we take Old Testament theology, New Testament theology, systematic theology, and then we'd break for lunch and we'd all sit around like we're doing right here at lunch and just talk about all the things we were learning. And that was just incredible. I just think about my, my Baptist and Episcopalian friends, my Catholic friends sitting with them at lunch and just learning new things about how to understand God and Jesus and the scriptures from their perspective and for the, from the way they had understood theology. It was super empowering. It was a hard program. I mean, I, the academics were very, very challenging. And also just the, the academic approach to the Bible was very new to me in some ways. And as you guys know, like studying the Bible academically is not intended to build faith. It's just to interpret the Bible as a scholar might. And that actually made my faith struggle a lot because I, I wanted to build faith and yet I was asked to put faith on the side while I scientifically studied the Bible and its origins. And actually I went through probably two faith crises immersing in that, one in my master's program at Yale. And then again, I went to Indiana University for my biblical studies program, getting a PhD. But I held true to what I'd known. I'd seen what Jesus does for people. And I knew that was real and true. And even though I may not be able to always give an answer to a scientist about it, I had felt it, I'd seen it. And I realized life is better when you hold on to what is true and build from there. And I kind of fast forward and summarize, I really thought I'd have a, a, a job as a religion professor, you know, teaching at a university. That was my dream. And God had other plans. He's like, yeah, thanks for playing, but I'm actually in charge of your life. And I was kind of mad about it. I'm like, I have a plan for myself. And he's like, no, actually, I'm in charge. <laughs> it took me a while to get used to that. So I actually did two PhDs at the same time, one in Bible studies and one in education, because I felt like I don't want to just simply know a lot about the Bible. I want to be able to be a better educator and actually help people better learn with the scriptures about Jesus and the gospel. So that's why I did the education degree. I didn't find a job in biblical studies, but I did get hired to work in a university at I went back to my alma mater, Brigham Young University, and my job for 11 and a half years was to train professors how to teach. It was a ton of fun. Loved it. And just a few weeks ago, I was recruited over into the business school at BYU to become an entrepreneurship professor, And which would seem a little strange. I tell people, it must have been my Hebrew and Greek knowledge that really sealed the deal for them. 
But over the years, I've realized that there's capital T truth, right, God, and there's lots of other truth, like say business truth, that can make people's lives better. And I realize that my personal mission in life is to help people find and embrace the best truth to live lives of joy. And I may not be able to be preaching Jesus every moment, but if I can preach the best business principles so that you can be a better manager, a better worker, be a better business owner that solves better problems for people, then I'll make the world a better place. And, you know, my idea would be engaging in conversations like this. I can't do it all the time, but that's kind of been my life trajectory. And it's, for the most part, has all been unexpected. It's like we're all on a hero's journey and the plot twists usually aren't very fun. But at the end, when God ties it all together, it's a pretty amazing story. Hey, thanks for sharing your story, Taylor. I feel like I know you uh, know you better. So that's great. Greg, thanks for hosting this and having us on. I'm Travis. So I, uh, unlike Taylor, I didn't grow up in the icy, frozen, cold north. I grew up in northwestern South Carolina. So people say all the time, you know, what was it like growing up in the south? We moved to Kentucky and then to Utah, and now we're back in Texas. You know, I always say you can take the boy out of the south, but you can't take the south out of the boy. So my two favorite things to do is really to watch college football and to watch NASCAR. So I'm as redneck as they come. I love to fish and hunt. So yeah, I grew up in Northwestern South Carolina in a very strong Christian family, very strong Southern Baptist family. In fact, we have family roots back to the founding of the convention in 1845 in South Georgia. And basically our family was, anytime the church doors were open, we were there. So Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, any type of activities on the weekends other than Sundays, we were there. My dad was one of the leaders in the church, was small group teacher. My grandparents were that way at their church on both sides. And all the way through, a lot like Taylor, all the way through middle school, high school, and then my first semester of college, I really could just have cared less about books, about reading. I was more into D equals diploma, hoping just to graduate. So graduated from high school and had two choices for college. Both were in my hometown. One was called North Greenville College, which is a small South Carolina Baptist institution. When I say small, I mean, Taylor, probably one of your classes might have more students in it at BYU than my entire college had when I started. There were 350 students at the entire college. That or Furman University, which is a historically South Carolina Baptist school, uh, is not any longer, but very well known for their academics. The difference uh, and the reason I chose North Greenville is because purely because of cost. And when we visited North Greenville, I just felt like that was where God wanted me to be. Furman was about $50,000 a year at the time when I was making a decision. North Greenville was about fifteen, So that $35,000 difference was not hard to figure out as far as stewardship goes. So I went to North Greenville, started out as a business major, thought I wanted to be a physician, a medical physician. So North Greenville didn't have a pre-med major. So I thought I'd just start business and get a couple of classes and then transfer to another school that had business. The end of my first semester of my freshman year, I really was wrestling with a call to ministry, a call to full-time ministry. So I was in an intro to Old Testament class and went with the professor to his office after class one day and talked to him about ministry, about what it was like. And he gave me some good tips that I've used since then. And I really just couldn't get ministry off my mind. I would wake up thinking about it, go to bed thinking about it. I thought, hey, if if I'm a physician over here, a medical physician, then I'll always think about what if with ministry. My favorite philosopher in history is Bugs Bunny. So, you know, what about that left turn at Albuquerque? I would have always thought, what about that left turn for ministry? So went and changed my major to religion, uh, to Christian studies, and went from a C student to an A student. Never made anything other than an A the rest of my time in college and was ordained at a church I was serving in my hometown in Greenville, South Carolina, and then 
got married in 1999, and we moved to Louisville, Kentucky two years later in 2001 for me to pursue a master's degree at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of the largest evangelical seminaries in the world. Did studies there, graduated in 2004 with a master's degree in theology, and then started a PhD. And from 2004 until 2009, as Taylor knows all too well, slept for about two hours a night and spent more money on books than I ever thought I would spend. And graduated my PhD in 2009. My PhD is in apologetics, so in defending Christianity from outside, either attacks or just discussing Christianity with other faith traditions. So I've loved it. It's been a great experience. It's something that I would have never imagined doing when I was growing up. Church was just something we did. It wasn't who I was. But now church, Christianity, training, future pastors, missionaries, church staff members is really what lights my fire. Interestingly, when I switched to religion in late 1995, early 1996, the first course I took as a religion major was Introduction to Minority Religions in America and New Religious Movements. And the first group we studied was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I just, for whatever reason, fell in love with it. Fell in love with trying to understand really not just Mormonism, but trying to understand other faith traditions, especially newer religious traditions, why people believe what they believe, how it impacts their lives. And what I learned is, is as we got into that course, we studied other faith traditions other than Mormonism, but I learned something about myself, and that is the stranger it is, the more I like it. So we would get into these really crazy alternate faith traditions, and I just fell more and more in love with those faith traditions. So that's all I've done since January of 96, is studied new religious movements and minority religions, especially in the U.S., Mormonism is my specialization area. That's actually what my PhD is in. It's in LDS philosophy. So yeah, I'm, I'm published in Mormon studies, have a lot of friends that teach with you, Taylor, at BYU. And in fact, we served from 2013 to 2020, or 19, sorry, as lead missiologists, my wife and I did, for the Southern Baptist Convention for Utah and Idaho. So we lived there in a suburb of Salt Lake City and got to experience dry thunderstorms and earthquakes, which were neither were fun for a kid coming from the south with humidity and tornadoes. So yeah, and I'm the same way, Taylor. I enjoy having a lot of fun, trying to make students laugh, because if I just stand and lecture and I'm not having fun, I'm likely to put myself to sleep before I put one of them to sleep. So yeah, that's a little about me. Married, uh, we have one son, Jeremiah, who's 15, just turned 15 a couple of weeks ago. And my wife and I come June, we've been married 21 years. It's actually amazing. We just have met and just all the common connections. You know, my dad also was deeply involved in the church growing up. And like you, like my church, church was my life for me when I was a teenager. And it still is in many ways, but on a given week, I'd be at the church six or seven times in a given week. I, I spent more time at church, it felt, I felt like, than maybe even at school. And about the same time you had this uh, this life path open up to you, it was about the same time for me. It was uh, January 1995, I decided to start studying religion. And the same thing, I, I get really interested in learning about other faith traditions because by encountering the other, I can actually learn what matters to me. In fact, I take tour groups all over the world. I've, I've led tours to India, Nepal, Bhutan, China. And part of it is for that very purpose is that you can't really truly know yourself and what matters to you if you never get outside yourself and never encounter other people who feel differently or think differently. So, in fact, I probably should spend more time with you to understand my own religion because uh, I'm not very published on Mormonism. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so the bookcases behind me, you can't see them because they're they're to my uh, to my left. I've got two entire bookcases of nothing but LDS books. I might be one of the only evangelicals on the planet that has a platinum membership at Deseret Book. Uh, so <laughs> I get email updates all the time. My wife will go through and she'll say, oh, here's another catalog from Deseret Book. What are we buying now? 
<laughs> the local store I used to go to in Riverton, there in the southwestern corner of Salt Lake, yeah. Salt Lake County. I would walk in there and say, oh, hey, Dr. Kearns, how are you? And I'm the only evangelical guy probably in all of that area who's going in there, one. But two, I'm probably the only evangelical that they knew by name. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I love that's it. That's awesome. Yeah. They need that because uh, most of them— <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great for them to, even when I walk in as an author, it's kind of a shock to them. But to have an author like you is even just a icing on the cake. Yeah, it was always fun. They would say, oh, what what kind of doctor are you? And, and I would always give the line that I that I told you before we started. Well, I, I'm a doctor, but I can't help you. I'm a PhD. Oh, and they're, oh, well, what, what's the PhD in? I would say, well, it, it's actually in LDS philosophy. Oh, did you go to BYU? Well, no, I'm a Southern Baptist, and my PhD is in LDS philosophy. Wait, you're a what? And you did what? I mean, just it was like the wrenches were being thrown into the gears there. So years ago, this reminds me of me moving out to Cairo, Egypt to study Arabic. And I try to inconspicuously stand at the back of the bus. But it's kind of hard for a tall American to be there. And everyone just turn and just stare at me. And finally, some brave Egyptian would say, Enta Amriki? Like, are you an American? I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. And they say, well, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm here to study Arabic. They're like, why? Like, because I want to study Islam. They're like, why? Because I want to read the Quran. It would blow their minds. They're like, an American wanting to study our religion? And then they'd always ask, are you studying? And I've now forgotten. There's like this, the most uh, famous religious university in the Islamic world. It's right there in Cairo. They asked if I was a student there. I'm like, no, I'm not. And of course, then, are you a Muslim? And I'd always say, Lissa which means not yet. <laughs> yeah, I felt that way in Utah. So here's here's the dark-headed guy with one kid walking around Utah saying, hey, how y'all doing? Do you have any sweet tea here? Do you have any grits at your restaurant? And those people looked at me like I was from Mars because, you know, my accent in Utah very much would give me away. In Texas, it doesn't give me away at all. But in Utah, if you say y'all unlike NASCAR, they don't know what to do with that. You know, I have lost my Minnesota accent, but you'd be surprised at actually how similar Minnesota and uh, South Carolina are, right? A lot of my friends were into hunting and fishing. In fact, I didn't get into hunting because my grandfather on my dad's side, my dad's dad, was an expert marksman and loved hunting growing up in Utah. And one time actually had a hunting accident and shot his best friend. Now, the guy didn't die, but my grandfather put guns down at that point. And so my father was not raised on hunting. And when he moved out of Utah to Minnesota, which is this incredible hunting and fishing state, and all my friends were doing this all the time with their dads, we never went. And we also had hot, humid summers and tornadoes. And I mean, it's like freezing cold in the wintertime. And when I moved to Palo Alto, California, where it's like 75 degrees year round, it's blue skies, I felt like my parents had lied to me. I'm like, you raised me where it was like negative 20 sometimes. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, South Carolina, cold for us was 40. But hot in the summer was 100 degrees with 100% humidity. Uh, yeah, so that it got usually nasty. Wasn't like that in Minnesota. Yeah, that's we love Utah. You know, 110 in the summer and 2% humidity. So that was yeah. great. So what uh, what prompted the change from Utah to to Texas? Yeah, so I was I was a professor at the seminary where I graduated at Southern Seminary for about eight and a half years before we moved to Utah to oversee mission work for the SBC. And I've always loved academics. I love mission work as well. But training new missionaries and new pastors is really what drives me. And about a year and two months ago, year and three months ago, Southwestern got a new administration in, a new president and the new provost. And I've been friends for close to 15 years. So when, when he was going through the process, he called me and he said, hey, uh, I might be going to, to Southwestern in Fort Worth as the president. Uh, would you want to come? And I said, well, if it gets serious, we'll talk about it. He kept calling me. Hey, it, it's down to me and one other. It's just down to me. 
So, you know, knowing your president, having a really strong friendship with him means a lot. So that was our that was our major region. That and we just felt called to make a change. We just felt like it was time. My wife and I independently felt that calling. So we made the change and it's been phenomenal. Don't you love it when things like that happen in your life? Like your wife feels a certain way and but she doesn't say anything because she doesn't want to like interrupt your life and you're feeling some way and you're like, I don't want to disrupt her. And and then one day it just kind of pops out. You're like, well, we've both been feeling this way for weeks. You know, I just love how God works in people's lives. And, and I'm sure God's just up there sometimes laughing at how slow we can be. And also just the delight he has when we finally take those leaps of faith and follow his guidance. So tell me about what you'll be doing in, in your role. Yeah, so I'm professor of, of apologetics and war religions. So it's my job. I'm now overseeing all of our apologetics degree programs and war religions degree programs. So I teach everything from apologetics. So that deals with the problem of evil and historicity of the text, historicity of the resurrection, the existence of God, all the philosophy courses that would kind of undergird that. also teach everything in war religions. So I teach Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, teach new religious movements, teaching a course next semester in Mormonism. And then also teach church planting, so starting new evangelical churches, how to do that, specifically in North America, because that's what I oversaw for six years for the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, it sounds like you're in a great position, right, where you're like kind of designing curriculum and you're empowering people with principles for how they can launch into the future. And I find that exciting because I got into Bible studies because I thought if I teach the Bible to enough people, the lives will be awesome. And like you, I've realized that it's more than just loving the Bible, loving the Word of God. It's like there are other skills that are necessary, that that structure that gets put in place to help people build the right kind of communities. Uh, even the fact that you had the strong relationship with the, with the president of this uh, university. These are all things that I wish I had been taught in my Bible program. But don't get me wrong, I really love my Bible programs, but I was so focused on the academics, I wasn't paying attention to the other things. Like, for example, when I was at Yale, they had, at the Divinity School, they had, they had preaching courses. And I thought, I don't need a preaching course. Like I spent two years preaching, like I know how to preach. So I was actually kind of prideful, full of myself. And I look back now and I think, boy, I probably would have really benefited from learning the techniques for how to prepare and present and how to actually speak to people's hearts. Because I just assumed that by, by doing, I was good at it. In fact, it's the same challenge I've seen when I worked with professors for over 10 years. Some of them would say to me, who are you to tell me how to teach? I'm a subject matter expert. And I'd say, well, I'm not really anybody. And I I don't know your area of expertise, but I do know principles for how to help other people learn. In fact, that's what I would really try to hone in with my professors is that their job was to drive student learning, not to teach. And it would kind of shock them like, wait, I'm not supposed to be a teacher? Like, well, that is part of your role, but really your job is to help other people learn and to design the systems, the structures, the content to help people learn. And teaching is one part of it, but overall it's the design of those experiences. It sounds a lot that's what you're doing now. You're kind of empowering, you're kind of uh, exponentially leveraging up your skill set to bless the lives of far more people than you could just only do on a one-on-one basis. Yeah, it's interesting. My teaching style is more Socratic, so I'm not much of a lecturer as much as I am one who likes that to present material, then ask questions and let them get to it on their own. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about Divinity School at Yale and how it felt so academic and just the the differentiation between more of kind of a mainline Protestant Divinity School versus seminary where I went. So the, actually where Greg is, is now in Louisville. For us, I even took a course at the beginning of my master's work that was basically how to stay a, a Christian while you're in seminary, because the Bible can become another textbook 
So this course focused on spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, regular Bible study, you know, regular worship, not only individual, but corporate worship. We begin, and I did this when I was a professor at Southern and have done this so far at Southwestern, begin every course with reading a chapter of scripture, with prayer time, taking prayer requests from students. So really trying to get them to understand, because seminary is not a university education. It is, but it's a university education focused on the ultimate practical application of that education. So really trying to help them think through how does this apply to everyday life? How is it going to apply to your everyday ministry? And hopefully getting them to understand the Bible really is more than just another one of your textbooks and to make sure not to treat it in that way. Well, thank you guys for sharing your stories and for stepping into one another's worlds. We're going to begin now with our first statement. God has revealed himself to humanity. So one of the things to know about me kind of as just a foundation is as a committed evangelical and especially as a committed Southern Baptist, I'm a believer wholeheartedly and without apology that the Bible is fully sufficient is inerrant and infallible. So every every one of my answers is always going to start with Scripture. So when we when we think about this statement, Greg, that you've read to us, that God has revealed himself to humanity, immediately my mind turns to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. And that text just says that long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And in the last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He's appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. So yes, absolutely, 1,000 times 1 million, I believe that God has revealed himself to humanity. He's done so not only through the Bible, but he's done so, as Hebrews says, in these last days. I think the Bible defines the last days as those days since the resurrection. In these last days, spoken to us by Christ, by the Son. So he's revealed himself in that way. He's also revealed himself, Romans 1 tells us, through creation. So he's revealed himself in written scripture, through his son, and through creation, through things that we see. I can remember times when I'm driving down the interstate or on my way home at night and see a sunset in the West, especially living in Utah. Some of the most beautiful sunsets I've ever seen in my life over the Ochre Mountains to the West in Salt Lake County. And just thinking, how can somebody believe there is not a God when you see things like this, or holding my son when he was first born, things like that. So yeah, I think he has absolutely revealed himself to humanity without any shadow of a doubt. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I feel the same way. It's the center of all things that I care about, that Jesus is real, that he's been revealed by God. And I believe, kind of case Travis is saying, that that power is still available today, that I believe God is still revealing himself in our lives. And if we pay attention, we'll just see his hand everywhere. And Again, I believe the greatest evidence for God is the manifestation of Jesus. Yeah, I would not disagree with that at all, Taylor. I think the greatest manifestation that God can give to us is the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of, of the Christian believer. And that's done through the grace, mercy, and forgiveness of Christ. Again, I think he has revealed himself to humanity. The way that humanity interprets that is a matter of another statement I think we're going to deal with here. So I won't jump into that one quite yet. But yeah, I think he's absolutely revealed himself to us. I, I know when I was a missionary... Learning how to feel God's Spirit more clearly in my life was one of the most important discoveries of my life. And I'd love to hear from Travis, because you've mentioned this now several times. What was your process of learning to recognize God's voice or presence in your life and, and how maybe tell a story or two about how that's impacted you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and I deal with this with students. I dealt with it with potential missionaries that we were bringing to Utah and Idaho. So I was trying to figure out what is God asking me to do? What is he telling me to do? Which way is he calling me? And we always want God to somehow with this magical airplane right in the sky, hey, dummy, do this. 
or, you know, hey, God, put up a billboard that says, I'm telling you, Travis Kearns, to go do this in this place at this time. So as we know, God can do that, but usually doesn't. So it's not that he can't, it's just usually does not. So always, as I'm trying to sense what the Lord is calling me to do, I turn, number one, to Scripture, to the Bible, to gain as much insight as I can. I turn to prayer. Evangelicals are strong believers in the priesthood of all believers. So we go to God through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, that I don't need a human mediator in between. So Scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and then through other Christian friends and family members. Pastor that I grew up with when I was trying to determine where to go to school said, you need to think through three things. Ask Number one, ask three trusted Christian friends outside of your family what they think. Number two, think about what wakes you up and puts you to bed. In other words, what do you think about when you wake up? What are you thinking about when you go to bed? If you did anything else, you would always think about the what if. So there's the left turn at Albuquerque. And then the third thing is to watch for signs. So as we were trying to determine whether or not to move to Utah, I'm literally in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, and saw a car with a Utah plate tag. I thought, okay, that that's unusual. So things like that are ways that I try to sense and determine what God is saying to me, what the Holy Spirit is leading me to do, again, primarily through Scripture and then through prayer by the power of the Spirit and through other trusted Christian friends, Christian leaders around me, things of that nature. What I love about what you said is that you're just in this great spot as an educator because not only do you teach principles, you show them how to do it and you share with personal experiences that it is possible. And in my experience, watching the best educators who basically help unfold students' lives is they do exactly what you're talking about. They don't just simply preach, right, the truth. And that's important, right? You People have to hear the truth, but modeling and showing them and telling those personal stories that are relevant because they see you, they're like, well, I, I know Travis or Dr. Kearns, and he seems like a pretty normal person. If he, if he can do it, I can do it. And I know for a lot of young learners who don't yet have those experiences, they, they worry, like, can I truly be loved of God? Can I really experience his guidance? And often they need someone who, you know, was once like them, you know, when they were younger, to inspire them that, yeah, God will do this for you as well. And you just have to put in the faith and act, and he will show you the way. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, probably the number one question I've gotten from students, and I was a pastor for a while in Louisville, so from church folks, and then as a church staff member and as a missionary in Utah, the number one question I've gotten is, what is God's will for my life that other people ask? And that's a question as somebody in ministry, I can't answer. I can tell you, you know, Romans says, don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's God's will for your life. How that works out practically is something between you and the Holy Spirit, and if you're married with your spouse— because if you're married, he's going to call you and your spouse at the same time equally. He's not going to just call one. So yeah, it's it's really trying to determine, has he revealed himself to us? Yes. Then trying to determine the actual practical outworking of that revelation is really more of the difficult process, just the rubber on the ground, tires on the street, yeah. than anything. You know, it makes me think of, I felt really impressed by God that I should spend my academic life studying the Bible. And I had interpreted that would mean I would become a religion professor. And when that didn't turn out, I was I was mad at God for a little bit. I thought he'd lied to me. And only after I kind of opened up my heart and mind to listen to what he was saying, I realized he had never told me what the end game was going to be with the inspiration to go move into that role of studying the Bible academically. And I hear you saying something similar that there's a lot of work that's required. Somebody once said to me, perspiration precedes inspiration, and then actually it also follows inspiration. 
and I don't know about you, I like to have God's presence with me on a regular basis, but I think I'm a pretty typical human that I got to slog my way through life and deal with difficulties and frustrations and, and everybody else who's a bad driver, it's never me, you know. <laughs> but I'd love to hear from you. What else do you experience in your life where you see God manifest? What do you tell people about how you still see that God is alive and well in our world and in your life? Yeah, you know, for me, I would probably say not only the continuing inspiration of the Holy Spirit in me individually, the continuing inspiration of the Holy Spirit for my wife and I as a couple, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with my wife and son and I as a family, not only in our love for each other, but in our love for Christ. I had a a mentor lady that I just loved in high school and college. Her name was Thelma. She was 90,000 years old, had walked with Jesus for 89,999 years. And Thelma always had this little note card. In fact, I have it here in my office, and she's been long dead. She had it on her bathroom mirror, and it said, Christ first, others second, self last. And I really see this, this idea of Christ first, others second, self last as how God continues to manifest himself through the lives of believers. So me individually, my wife and I as a couple, my wife, son, and I as a family, and then through our church, through the the elders, the leaders at our church, through our pastor, through colleagues I work with here at the seminary who are all evangelical believers. It's just amazing to see how God works things out and how you can even have real peace through difficult circumstances. About a year and a half ago, I went through a difficult health circumstance And now as I look back at it over the last 18 months or so, I think I'm glad it happened because I've I've been more sanctified through that process over the last 18 months than I was for the 40 years prior. I don't like how God got my attention, but he did. So I think that goes back to your perspiration before and after. So two thoughts about this. I love languages and words. I actually never aspire to learn languages, but I've now studied like 15 different languages and I just get fascinated by how words work. And you talk about how you're a professor of ministry, is that right? Or, But you're deeply involved in ministry. Yeah. And I looked up the word minister at one point, and it comes from the word minus, to be less than. And you talked about that chart from your this uh, woman who I'm sure she's just smiling right now up in heaven about the strong influence that she continues to exert in your life for positive good. Jesus first, others second than me. That is minus, right? You've put yourself down at the bottom. That is the essence of ministry. And I mentioned this once. I was teaching a lesson just recently. I said, think about how we use the word minister today outside of religious context. It's a prime minister. That's the person who's up front, gets to make all the decisions. It's always about me. And we have people who've hijacked the term, right, for the wrong reasons and, and, and don't serve others. You talked about health challenges and how God can reveal himself to us in difficulty. Like you, I've had some really difficult, painful life experiences. And at the time, I'm like, really, God? I think, you know, I believe in you. You don't need to actually give me any more final exams. I think I got this. And he knew better. Well, my wife recently, she went totally deaf in the last three years. And so it's been really hard for her. She's had to get cochlear implant surgeries. That's been really hard. And then she's had bunions on her foot and she went to get surgery. And then she had complications with one and ended up having eight more foot surgeries. Well, she was basically in bed for four or five months last year, didn't drive. It was just really pretty chaotic, a really discouraging time for her. And what's interesting is in all of this, she said, I grained a a strong witness of the resurrection, right? It's something she'd always believed as Christians were going to be resurrected. It's a core element of, of the work of Jesus. But she said, you know, here I have this broken body. I've lost all my hearing. I now have to use basically computers to help me understand people around me. My feet, I've basically damaged for the rest of my life because of botched surgeries. And you can imagine, right, you know, she's in her 40s. 
maybe I have another 40 years of life. Do I have to live with a broken body? And she just had this intense, powerful witness of the resurrection. And I also believe the resurrection. And as she talked about it, I realized I'm now feeling a little jealous because I'm not sure my witness of the resurrection is quite as strong as hers. And I think, yeah, God, I'm okay with my, my level of witness. I really don't want my body to be broken much more <laughs> to get to my wife's level. I'm not that faithful yet. So I'm good where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally get it. Like I said, it's something that I don't like how God did it, but I like that God did it. There is only one God. Yeah, I will start with that one. So I do believe in that. And the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a slightly nuanced version of that belief that we believe the one God is represented by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And we see them as distinct beings. Traditional Christianity sees them all as one single entity. Obviously, it's a much bigger conversation than with far more nuance. And I've spent a lot of time studying all sides of the conversation, and I'm completely satisfied that God is one and that our focus on Him as our Lord and Savior is really what we need to be focused on. And I don't know, after studying like all sides of the conversation, I realized that I think God is happy to know that I love Him and want to serve Him and His people and not spend a lot of time uh, getting into the details of how I might describe him. And that's just kind of where I've landed on my faith. And this has been the empowering thing. And I think, Travis, you mentioned this in some of your earlier statements that I actually deeply enjoy talking to people who see life a little bit differently or their faith might be described in a slightly different way or even maybe radically differently because it actually empowers my faith because I believe God is the God of this world, of all the people in it. And when I go listen to people, say I go out and uh, study Hinduism, I might learn things about God that I may not have been able to see in my own life experience. It doesn't mean I become Hindu, but I can be appreciative that I am gaining a larger perspective of God's work and his love for his people. It's one of the reasons I enjoy talking with you, Travis, and others like you is that it enlarges my understanding of who God is, his oneness, his work, and how he is actively working to bring his salvation to all people if we just be willing to accept it. Yeah, so, you know, as I mentioned, one of the things I love doing is looking at Old and New Testament texts. As, Greg, as you bring up this statement that there's only one God, again, uh, the first text that comes to mind is 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. It's There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. You know, as you look through the Old Testament, if you were to sum up the entire Old Testament, I have to be careful when I do this because seminary students might say, oh, well, I don't need to, to pay for four or five years of school, so Greg, continue working at Southern. Don't take this as your entire education. The entire Old Testament can be summed up by saying, there is one God, worship him alone. The entire New Testament can be summed up by saying, God has revealed himself in Christ, worship him. And those who don't worship the one true and living God in the Old Testament are destroyed, both physically and spiritually. And then in the New Testament, things change to more of a spiritual destruction necessarily than physical. So yeah, there is there is one God. There is no other God other than the God of the Bible, the God of the Old and New Testaments, who has revealed himself. From an evangelical perspective, I would say this. We have to be very cautious when we're saying, okay, and, and Taylor, don't hear me saying, I think you're saying this, because I'm very willing to go out and learn from other faith traditions. Just because a Hindu says it doesn't make it wrong. Just because a Muslim says it doesn't make it wrong. But I'm very, very picky, I guess is the best word, about looking at God, about defining God, 
because I see more than half of the text, the 39 books of the Old Testament, really defining who God is, and that entire section being focused on worship me or else. You know, the, the prophetic formula in Jeremiah is, if you bless me, I'll bless you. If you curse me, I'll curse you. He's, he's pretty straightforward. It's interesting, a lot of times I hear, especially from my atheist friends, you know, the God of the Old Testament is so angry, and the God of the New Testament is so loving. But that, that couldn't be more ridiculous. The God of the Old Testament, in order to be considered a murderer, you have to actually commit murder. To be considered an adulterer, you have to actually commit adultery. In the New Testament, to be considered a murderer, you just think poorly about somebody who's beside you. To be considered an adulterer, you have lust in your heart. If you're going to separate those two deities, give me the Old Testament God all day long. Because I'll never be an adulterer, I'll never be a murderer, I'll never be a liar, I'll never be a thief. But Jesus takes those standards and just ups them exponentially. So yeah, there is one God. You know, the difficulty about this, and again, Greg, I won't jump in because I think there's another statement that deals with this to some degree. The difficulty with an evangelical position on this, and to some degree, even a Latter-day Saint position, is when you say there is only one God, that excludes religious belief that believes that there's more than one God. So is there a sense of exclusion or exclusivity to that? Yes, there is. But I hope, anyway, that the the difference in conversations like this is that we can disagree with others without being a jerk for Jesus. I consider myself a George W. Bush compassionate conservative, so I can I can disagree without being disagreeable. At least that's my hope. Yeah. So yeah, there's there is only one God. He's revealed himself in the form of a trinity. So that's a significant point of departure between Latter-day Saint theology and, and traditional Christian theology between ontological oneness and some type of relationship that's less than ontological oneness. Is it a difficult conversation? Yes. Has the church ever figured it out? No. At least, you know, in regards to defining the Trinity, you can try to use analogies or examples, but most times those fall into some type of heresy that the church has condemned for almost 2,000 years. So yeah, again, just in summary, there is one God. There is no other God. It's the Holy One of Israel is it. Any other God is a man-made creation that's, that's in his mind. Yeah, and I love uh, the statement back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. Oh my gosh, my Old Testament professors are going to not be happy that I forgot it. But basically the Israelite testimony statement of faith. Yashma Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Ehad, right? Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. And it's interesting because in, in Islam, as you know, that is, you know, the shahidah, the testimony that you have to witness before two authorized people to become a Muslim, you say, la ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasulallah. There is no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. And that first part of the statement, there is only one God. I mean, this is, of course, central to the monotheistic, uh, the great monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And I find those statements really compelling. And where I've gotten to in my life is that I spent a lot of time, as you were saying, these have been discussions for thousands of years, and a lot of smart people discussed it. And I've listened to those debates and realized that I probably am not going to resolve it because I don't know if my words alone will ever be able to fully describe who God is and isn't. And I've gotten to the point where I'm just happy enough just trying to live the basic things that I struggle with, faith, repentance, loving my neighbor, and that I want to encounter God's reality by living life. So it's been this interesting journey for me that I still love engaging in the philosophical theological conversations, but at the end of the day, trying to actually do theology versus only just talking about it is, in the end, probably going to be better for me. 
And it took a while for me to figure that out. Yeah, Thomas Aquinas, when trying to describe God, rather than doing so positively, used the way of negation. So God is not this, God is not that. I think we can understand God as far as he has revealed himself, and I think he's revealed himself adequately and sufficiently through the pages of the Bible. But can I ever say, as a human, either on this side of heaven or after death, that I fully understand God? No, I absolutely can never say that. I can understand God as he's revealed himself to us through the scriptures and through Christ, but can I ever fully understand, for example, how he is 100% holy and I'm 100% not, and he still allows me into heaven? No, I can't. I can't fully understand that. I can understand the parts of it he's revealed, but there's no way to fully understand, you know, everything that he is or else that would make me God. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was in grad school doing my Bible studies program, I started dealing with some like personal challenges. I I was married once before. I'm actually married a second time. My first wife was at divinity school with me. We kind of met at the BYU Jerusalem program fell in love with the Bible, fell in love with each other afterwards, and thought, let's go study the Bible together. And our marriage started to fall apart. Years later, I discovered she was dealing with a pretty serious mental disorder. But it's interesting. So I dealt with all this personal suffering and tragedy while I was in my Bible program. Setting aside the intellectual challenge and the faith challenge of like, people were saying, oh, this Bible is just a textbook and you don't have to take it seriously as a faith-promoting text. And I remember thinking like, God, I really love studying the gospel. Why are you making me live it? <laughs> you know, why do you require me to actually practice repenting and forgiving and trusting you? Like, isn't it just enough for me to study the best sermons that have ever been preached on this and to write out good sermons and teach other people the principles? Don't make me live it. And I realized, it actually took me a while, that I'd gotten to a point where I was far more interested in studying about God than actually having his reality work in my life. And I was a slow learner. I kind of came kicking and screaming. I'm like, I don't want to have to deal with difficult experiences. I don't want to have to deal with difficulties that require me to trust God more and to exercise faith and to forgive those who have hurt me and to change and repent of things that I've done that have hurt others. And so part of that has influenced my thinking, like, I still love reading as much as I can around the Bible, but it kind of changed my perspective a little bit that end of the day, I am just not as emotionally invested as I used to be in all the, debate's not the right word, but like all the engaged thinking around theology. It's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, what got me started was theology, and now I'm like, I'd rather just live it than just talk about it. If I could get both, I would do it, but now I've learned if I had a choice, I would just, if I had to choose one or the other, it would just be trying to live what I've learned from God and then see his, his truth revealed more fully in my life. Yeah, we have a nice little statement that floats around evangelical academic circles and to some informed layman in evangelical life, and that is orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. So right belief leads to right practice. Now, separating either one of those leads you into problems on either side. If it's just orthodoxy, then you're a Pharisee or a Sadducee. If it's just orthopraxy, then you may be a heretic somewhere because you've got false belief. That's why I say earlier, I think it's it's vitally important not only to say there is one God, but here's who that God is. That's 39 books of the Bible of the 66. It's focused on who God is, on defining who he is. You know, you see in Exodus 20, when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, God says, I am who I am, which I would argue a better translation is actually, tell them I will continue to be that which I've always been is my name. Well, what has he been? He's been creator, sustainer, preserver, savior. He's been holy. He's been graceful. He's been merciful. He's been wrathful. He's been right on and on and on and on and on it goes. So 
I think those, uh, you know, the orthodoxy, your right belief leads to that right practice. And that's where I go back to Thelma, that lady in my life from middle school, high school and college, well, high school and college, who would say it's God first, others second, self last, because you realize that you are nothing and he is everything. And without him, I continue to be nothing. So yeah, it's one of those things that is there only one God? Yes, absolutely. Is there more to it than just saying yes, absolutely? Yes, absolutely. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And we'd greatly appreciate it if you can leave a review for us on this podcast. It helps all these conversations get out to more and more people. So thank you so much for doing that. And remember that truth is out there. You'll want to join us for the next episode to keep exploring.